you remain standing. Please turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. As we continue our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, hear now God's holy word. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he, has, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the grounds like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It's good to be here. And uh, thank you for braving the really rough situation outside with the weather. Um, I mean, this is nothing though, right? And uh, I, I was, I, there are more people here than I was expecting. So praise the Lord. And I hope, uh, hopefully you'll keep safe today and this week. Well, we're back in the book of Ecclesiastes. We only have maybe four or five sermons left uh, to go as we head towards the end of the book. And as with Solomon, as the preacher king would often do, today's passage goes back to this kind of proverb style, one after another, this pattern that we're familiar with. You'll, you'll notice that his thoughts seem to kind of jump around a lot throughout this chapter, maybe even the whole book. It's been said that Martin Luther lamented how sporadic Solomon can move from topic to topic in his transitions. But it's sort of like journaling. For some of you guys who are really devoted to journaling, and not just a a couple sentences, but whole paragraphs, maybe pages, where your mind can move pretty swiftly in recalling your day or your week, or you're in a race, where you're in a race, you just kind of jot all your thoughts at once. This is, it feels similar uh, to what Solomon is doing. He's expressing his heart in an unfiltered way. He's not saying, I need to format this in a way to turn this in as a term paper to be graded on. He is sharing. Uh, the thoughts of his heart. But I hope as we pace ourselves, we're going to track with his principles really well, even if it does seem sporadic at first glance. But before we go forward, uh, you know, I, I just want us, as I just prayed before, to come together and pray for your own heart, as we're going to be talking a lot about the heart as we submit it to, before the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, I do, do pray that even as I'm proclaiming your holy word, that we would be praying constantly for our hearts and our minds uh, to truly love your word, to receive your word, that it would be more than just going one year and out the other, but that it would land at the center and that the seeds would be buried deep and that it would be bearing uh, a multitude of fruit uh, this coming week and this coming year. We ask this because we know that we're weak, we're sinful, and we need your Holy Spirit to help us in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Do you ever remember a time when you were so overwhelmed with a smell, dare I say, a stench, that that experience was so impactful that as I'm saying that right now, you're kind of remembering that smell. Perhaps a pot of food, uh, too bad our college students aren't here, but I would say maybe some of them cooked something, maybe it's some ramen at midnight and they left the leftovers in a pot and they kind of just forgot about it as college students do. Not that I've done this, but I'm just saying college students have done this. And maybe they just got lazy, they forgot, and, uh, or maybe it was just so messy that it just kind of blended in with the background. And we know what happens after two or three weeks of pots not being cleaned and you open, you take off the lid and it's not flowers. It's, uh, it's an intrusive uh, smell, perhaps even provoking a gag reflex. Maybe for you new moms or dads here, in the morning service, but also in the afternoon service. There's a lot of new moms and dads here with, with young children. You've had several of those moments changing diapers, something you'll probably tell me that you'll never forget, and I've heard that from my friends often. Robin, you'll never forget those kinds of smells. Well, Solomon starts off chapter 10 with a reminder that was quite common some 3,000 years ago in this ancient context. The dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. He's trying to introduce this theme of folly and wisdom, but he wants to give a kind of punch at the beginning to wake you up to, to, to get this image down. These insects would bury deep into the perfume in ancient days as they were so enchanted by the scent, only to get all stuck and eventually die, leaving a grotesque smell that would destroy the whole bottle. If the bottle, let's say, was $1,000, oh, just these few insects can just ruin the value just like that. I imagine even if there were only a couple of insects, that would be enough to turn it upside down. Or imagine you have your huge Stanley tumblers that a lot of you have. I'm considering buying one just because I feel like I'm missing out. But some of these huge Stanley tumblers can hold a thousand ounces of water or a hundred ounces or whatever you put in there. But what if you had the most pristine water from let's say the Arctic Circle, I, I'm, I don't know, I'm just, just making that up, but let's just say you had the most pure water in there, but I told you, oh by the way, somebody put one milliliter or one ounce of toilet water in your Stanley tumbler. Would you still drink it? It's the most pristine water. All I did, not me, but someone else put one milliliter of toilet water. Would you drink it? Of course not. You would bleach it. You would put it in fire. You would do all these things to, to cleanse it. Maybe one or two of you would still drink it, but that's another situation. But, but most of us would just toss the whole thing away. The point, of course, is that for the overarching theme today of folly versus wisdom, with folly... You only need a tiny bit to turn someone's life wayward. Verse 1 again, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A little folly welcomed into your life can negate or out-influence all the other godly priorities you've been set on. How quickly it can turn. I'm certainly one that could look back at my life and see how this could be true and very sudden in regards to patterns. And it's actually amazing that you think, oh, just kind of the, the godly pursuits I've had for years or maybe even decades 
A one month, two months of just kind of being wayward in folly can turn things upside down pretty quickly. It's actually pretty amazing how that can happen. As one author notes, the preacher King Solomon is warning us against the stench of folly, but he's trying to conversely introduce us to the sweetness of living in God-fearing wisdom. The comparison is simple enough. Wisdom equals sweetness. Folly equals rancid, spoiled. Solomon understands that wisdom cannot save. We've already talked about that in our series. It cannot save. It cannot solve all the upside-downness of life under the sun for you or for society. And if you're new, life under the sun that he uses often is life in this fallen world, including even our own sinfulness. That's the main kind of, one of the main points in the whole book. But certainly God-fearing wisdom is way better than a life of folly. Even if wisdom can't save and solve all your problems, surely God-fearing wisdom is way better than a life of folly, he keeps bringing up throughout this book. One scholar wrote that it's far easier to make a stink in life than to create sweetness. And so Solomon then understands that the life of folly is somewhat like a match casually thrown out in the dry forest, only to hear days later, remember that match you tossed out? Well, that caused this massive 100-acre wildfire. This is not something to play around with, is his theme. But if everyone innately thought wisdom is this type of sweetness, something good for you, wouldn't more people readily pursue this? And it would almost be like, I, we don't really need to hear this, Robert. Well, of course we know that wisdom is good. We, of course we know it's sweet. Wouldn't more people just naturally pursue this? I think it's like a good, dear friend that you might have telling you constantly, Robin, you got to wake up. It's time to smell the flowers. You're always so downcast and negative, you got to stop to smell the flowers. Or, or perhaps this type of sweetness is somewhat of an acquired taste, where we need repeated exposure in order to really buy in. So maybe this isn't just this natural thing that we would want or desire, but something that we need to be exposed to and have an acquired taste. Growing up, I've shared this here before, I couldn't stand the taste or the smell of Korean food. I, I really couldn't. I was almost ashamed of that heritage. I really just wanted hamburgers, chicken nuggets, thank you. None of that fermented, spicy stuff. But as I got older, the more I got exposed to the variety of wonderful flavors and food experiences, I started to crave Korean food like none other. And I think the path of wisdom is like that. Solomon is not expecting this overnight understanding and transformation of your senses. But he's trying to train our spiritual senses to go the right way. And so that leads us to our next verse, verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. You know, as a repeated refrain for this chapter, the preacher king continues with this topic of folly and foolishness. And that this is not someone who simply does evil equals someone who does folly. Folly is actually more acceptable in our world than evil. Perhaps, and I think this is Solomon's point, folly is even expected or applauded in any society 3,000 years ago even or in the present day. Meaning everyone can largely agree that murdering someone in malice is evil and wrong 
churchgoers or non-churchgoers, everyone could sit in a room and say, yeah, that's not right. But denying God and living for your own gain, your own pursuits, you're the center of the world, that's a different story, right? People can accept that. You are your own master. You got to do, you know, you only live once. You got to do what's, you got to do you is kind of a popular refrain today. A man or woman chasing after multiple sexual partners is almost considered admirable in our culture. Why, even in this room, there could be many of us that struggle with folly and foolish thinking or living even if we don't ardently want to commit any evil. There is a difference. Folly can be more subtle. Oh, I just want to cheat on my taxes and gain more and more and more. The world will say, what's so bad about that? If you can get away with it, you can get away with it. Good for you. Folly is different than just committing evil. Phil Riken further helps us note the difference. He writes this, To understand the difference, we need to know the biblical definition of folly. A quote-unquote fool in the biblical sense is not necessarily someone with below average intelligence. Folly does not always show up on the low end of the IQ scale. Rather, the term refers to someone who lacks the proper fear of God, and therefore is prone to go the wrong direction in life. He goes on to say, it is the fool who says in, the, in his heart, Psalm 14.1, there is no God. The fool is characterized instead by impulsive disobedience, self-centered arrogance, and rash disregard for the holiness of God, end quote. Why did I spend some time reading from that excerpt? I think it's because I think many of us are tempted to think, if I'm not pursuing any blatant wickedness or malice, I'm good to go. I'm good enough, I might think, or you may think. But when you think of the biblical concept of folly, that should make us feel more aware of the pits and snares of our own hearts, the deepening sense that we need a mediator, a redeemer, a savior. Something is wrong. Something is entirely off, actually. One author reminds us a good summary list Solomon provides in Ecclesiastes. As I said, this was a repeated theme throughout the whole book. The fool is someone who is lazy, chapter 4, verse 5. The fool is someone ill-tempered, chapter 7, verse 9. Someone who is morally blind, chapter 2, verse 14. And listen to this, chapter 9, verse 17. He refuses to take advice. All variety of descriptions of folly and the fool. Surely we could recognize ourselves somewhere in that list. But if you're like me, you hear a a good point about the Bible's view on the human heart, you might already be thinking of someone else to share this with. If only my rebellious child could be here and hear this. If only my lost co-worker or my lost relative could hear this or my lapsed, backslidden friend. If only they were here to hear this chapter. And surely there'll only be a time of lovingly confronting someone with God's word about these things. But let's not forget our own hearts in regards to folly. For it seems to me that folly has a lot to do with being unaware of your own wayward perspective. Now this verse is not saying all who are left-handed are evil, because I'm left-handed, or prone to do evil. Nor is this some verse to talk about political affiliations during an election year, the right versus the left. But 3,000 years ago, in biblical context, the term right was usually associated with positive things, the right way. 
Or even, as we saw with Jesus ascending after his resurrection, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, this place of authority. But we must focus on the meaning of what Solomon is trying to say. The rebellious fool goes his own path. The path of folly that eventually leads to destruction. And notice how Solomon pinpoints their origin to all of this. The heart. Now, I've said this before, but especially in the Old Testament, when you see heart in the Old Testament, that does not equate to what we in modern day think of the heart, something that controls our feelings or our emotions. But heart in the Old Testament is way more important. It's the central command center of someone's whole being. The heart in the Old Testament was then the leader of a person's will, his or her affections, and even actions. If only God could make a man or woman's heart wise, then thou will indeed lead them in the right direction. And I can't stress that enough. We always need the intervention of God's grace if we are to be transformed or to change. To change. But if we go with our default setting, what we were born with, Oh, our foolish, sinful hearts will always slide away from God and not toward him. But if this doesn't have to do with IQ, or perhaps we could even say your upbringing and how you're raised, what should we be praying for ourselves and for others? That God would transform the heart. A theme for our church this year. Not that God would just make you or someone who... You, who you care about just behave differently but that God would change and transform their hearts I stand there here as a as one recognizing my own sin I the reason why I dictated this to the elders and to the staff that we were going to pray about today it's going to be I, I invite you to join us in two weeks to pray after service it's because I really feel this immense conviction that that I want to change I I don't want just to know things or experience things and now being over 20 years in you know, some type of ministry that, that I've arrived. No, I, I want to change. I want my heart and my affections to be changed continually, year by year by year. So I don't think this is a once-in-your-life type of thing. I think what Solomon is talking about is this gradual spiritual surgery that takes place after salvation. And so we should never stop wanting to change or be more and more transformed into the image of the Son. Meaning, salvation is not just a voucher that gets you into heaven. But it's also an introduction to a life walking with God. And Solomon is saying this starts at the level of the heart. Let's move to verse 3. Even when the fools walk on the road, he lacks sense and he says to everyone that he is a fool. One can think Solomon is speaking figuratively here, of course, but I'm amused by those who are entirely directionless that need GPS even to go three minutes away for almost everything. That's me, actually, but I'm not going to tell you those embarrassing stories. Instead, I'm going to make fun of my cousin, who years ago was living temporarily in the Chicagoland area, and she was notorious, maybe it runs in the family, she was notorious for not having good direction skills. And before GPS was invented, she would often wind up going hours in the wrong direction. One time she had to stop. She was like, something is wrong. It's been two hours. It should have taken 15 minutes. So she stops. There's no cell phones at that time. She uses the payphone. She calls, and they say, fill in the blank. I'm not going to out her. 
you are going to Iowa. <laughs> and she's trying to go to the north birds of Chicago, but she was going towards Iowa. Or have you ever seen those videos of people depending on GPS so intently that they're not even really looking in front of them. They're just looking at that little GPS and they're listening to that uh, uh, strange voice and they're saying, please take a left 100 feet away. And they're not even looking and they go straight into the water. Have you seen those videos? They just, they're so dependent that they go straight into the water and the GPS is like, I'm sorry, I need to get updated. And just, it's disaster. It's hard to believe, but it happened. That hasn't happened to me, but it happens. It happens so often, the picture Solomon is granting us makes more sense now. If you turn straight into water, you're telling everyone you're not a good driver. Same with folly. When you lead a foolish life, everyone could see your waywardness as clear as day, even if it's not so clear to us. You, of course, lack this sense of the sweetness of wisdom. Sometimes, though, we need a closer inspection of one's heart to see true folly because often this can be hidden under a pretty normal exterior. I once forgot, and please have grace on me, this was decades ago that I did some groceries and I had like 15 bags and I was just trying to organize and be in a rush to organize all, all my groceries. And I, I love bread. And there was this long, wonderful, fresh baked French bread. And I just kept it in the grocery bag and I kind of slid it on top of the refrigerator with some of my other you know, cereals or whatever. Uh, and, I, and I thought, oh, I'm just gonna enjoy that this week. But I also put, I think, this is maybe my out here, that I put other kind of bags there too. And so it kind of got blended in. And so later, uh, embarrassing, I'll say months later, I was doing some spring cleaning, we'll call it that. I, I was stunned to realize, oh no, there's the bread that I had forgotten about maybe five months ago. And as I was peering into it and I was unraveling, I was like, I'm just gonna get this cloud of mold spewed into my face as I looked into the bag with horror. But that didn't happen. Instead, I saw a perfect looking loaf of bread. I mean, it looked perfect. It had the same color, that fresh color, you know, right out of the oven, everything. I was amazed. And as I grabbed it though, the funny thing was, it was petrified. <laughs> it was literally solid as a rock. I could go play baseball with it. It was just a new thing. But on the outside, everything looked exactly the same and normal. And I bring that up because I, I think this is what happens when you lack any awareness of folly. Everyone eventually can see your folly, but often you're left the last person to be aware yourself. And how dangerous folly can be in that sense. In verse, look at your passage here, in verse 4 through 7, the author moves to another category that folly affects both the poor and rich, rulers and servants alike. He's saying we live in a fallen world under the sun, and because of this, we see a topsy-turviness everywhere we look. And let me just read these verses again. Verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. 
I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now, if you think about the history of the world and even our contemporary global, global setting, we have rulers and leaders of all kinds, differing types and styles of government. Then multiply that over 3,000 years since Solomon wrote this book. That's a lot of different styles of leading and lots of rulers and kings and presidents and prime ministers, et cetera, et cetera. Life under the sun, though, helps under, us understand that the majority of our examples of leadership are bad in some way, shape, or form. Political leaders let us down all the time. And this affects all sides of the spectrum. We can't deny that. And Solomon is saying folly and foolishness don't discriminate. This affects everyone in every category of leaders throughout history. Things get upside down when people live in folly. And this creates a backwardness and uses his contemporary examples as proof in, in those verses. It doesn't make sense. It's people with more power and more authority should act more in wisdom, but it's always usually backwards. So one way we feel is the proper response is to retaliate against such upside-downness, and we need to fight back. And of course, there are some scenarios where that needs to happen when injustice is rampant. But the overall picture Solomon gives us is, as one scholar puts it, don't fight folly with folly. Proverbs 15.1, Solomon also reminds us, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Whether we suffer from the hands of rulers or kings or our bosses or even our own family members, we are called to suffer following the example of Christ. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Peter 2, verse 21 through 23, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is just an incredible passage, but such a difficult one to get down to the root of your own heart. We want to threaten. We want to revile. We want to retaliate. We want to fight back. We don't want to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. It takes a miracle of God's intervention for this to be heeded from the words of Peter. And so from the grand things of life to the minor and more trivial, this applies. I remember as a poor church planner in the city to try to get by and make ends meet, I took a waiter job near our church location. This was my first go at waiting tables. So I just tried to do what I could do. But something was odd. As, as I was getting started, I found out pretty early that the owner would take 50% of your tips at the end of the night. Now, every single waiter or waitress, 50% has to go back to him. Now, that's illegal in our state to do. But he would simply retort, well, if you don't like that policy, just leave. And I was so desperate, I had to stay months longer because I, I was just in so much need for something to live off of. What do you do when you're exposed to folly? Big things, or like my previous example, a smaller thing. I probably was con contemplating that question even back then. What do you do when you see such folly, backwardness? And I think a biblical principle that rings true in this passage and throughout the scriptures is not only defending what is right or right principles, but being correct in your posture too. 
So many struggle, not just with choosing the path of wisdom and dictating this to others, even in correction, what is quote unquote right, but the struggle is in the way you present those thoughts, your posture. Should I flip tables to scream what is right or present my thoughts in a spiritually mature, calm way? Because I think the quote unquote fool might say, well, I'm saved already, so I can act however I want. I could swing my bat around and really scare some people with what I have to say. But is there a God-glorifying alternative in dealing with folly and fools, a speaking of truth and love? I think the Bible says yes. So I think Solomon is on to something here. And so speaking of work and our occupation, Solomon takes us in our home stretch in verse 8 through 11 by addressing another transition to some of the dangers we find in just everyday labors. Look at verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it. That's unfortunate. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. And I've seen enough short videos online where people get hurt all the time with the hazards of their occupations, from cutting large trees down, from falling into massive pits, from, hev uh, from having heavy objects fall on unsuspecting workers, and so on and so forth. Solomon, again, brings up some of his contemporary examples, but he continues by saying, if the iron is blunt, verse 10, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. That's why you always sharpen your knives. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. I think the overall point in regard to the theme of folly versus wisdom, friends, is that in all categories of life, the path of folly is one step away of wreaking havoc in your casual way of looking at life. Accidents happen all the time, and I think he's bringing that a one-to-one -one correlation about the life of choosing folly. Folly is expressed simply here in the context of someone's professional work, even as unique as those snake charmers back then, as a precursor to danger demise if you're not careful. But he concludes that wisdom, on the other hand, prevents disaster, and we can say both in our physical world, but also spiritual. So I dare to say, is, is this anyone here in our new year? On January 14th, is anyone stuck in the merry-go-round of folly? Is anyone here tempted to jump on that ride this year and allow your life to dangerously slip into rebellion and a life of self-centered reliance and arrogance as was defined earlier today. Is that anybody here? Is that me? Do I feel on the peripheral that temptation to jump on that merry-go-round of folly? But how can I tell? How can you tell that this is you or not? If you're saying this is way harder to spot than someone doing blatant evil, how will I ever become aware that I'm not choosing the path of folly? Well, first off, are you content being the fool? Are you content being the fool? Meaning, even if you do recognize a life of folly, does that even matter to you anymore? Has you be have you become so numb to it that it doesn't really just matter at all? Or are you content with the latter portion of Proverbs 13, 16, where every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly? A fool flaunts his folly. So as I was trying to do as I was preparing, I, I, what are the contemporary examples of folly? And this is not exhaustive. This is only four or five things out of thousands of ex contemporary examples. But I think pride 
is definitely part of foolishness. Is this being left unchecked in your heart? Or do you like to exert undue power over others? You want to control people. Or drunkenness and a life of untamed excess and greed and gluttony. Or being frivolous and unwise with your money. Or not wanting to treat people with care or dignity. This is all part of folly. Are you a gossip or slanderer? Or do you play the card that says, I'm, a, I'm reformed. I, I have all my reformed theology and I'm, I'm a believer and I'm justified by grace alone. Therefore, I don't have to care one bit about a life of folly or wisdom or how I live or treat others because I have my doctrine down. But we don't care what your doctrinal convictions are. If you like to flaunt your folly and find contentment there, you're headed for a devastating crash. If this is your final disposition, that as long as I have my doctrine squared away, it really just doesn't matter what I do. You're headed for a devastating crash. So I think the first step is to soberly evaluate your own heart and ask yourself, would I even care if my life resembles the life of folly? Secondly, if the life of folly is sometimes very difficult to identify, Perhaps you should ask some godly, trusted people around you who will not sugarcoat things for you, but will indeed speak truth in what they're saying, seeing, but knowing that they will say it in love. Not someone that will just say sweet nothings to you and overlook what is ailing you, as if you have this huge gash in your side and you're bleeding out and they still just say, everything looks good to me, Robin. I'm talking about people who are more mature than you spiritually that can tell you this is what I'm seeing. And then if it's validated by others who are saying the same thing, I think that's a great way to say, hmm, I didn't think I was very prideful or fill in the blank. But if X amount of godly brothers and sisters are seeing this also in me, may I be quick to repent and return to the Lord. And of course, indeed, more than any godly brother or sister speaking into your life, ask the Holy Spirit to put that mirror in front of you again to then say, I've been so helped to see my blind spots indeed and so forth and so on. I don't know how many times friends, peers, but then also older brothers and sisters who are in the faith and mature, more mature than me have pulled me aside to say this is what I'm seeing. Maybe I wasn't in the full depths of folly, but they could maybe see that I was headed towards there. I thank God for them. I thank God for you. And a final encouragement to you as we conclude our thoughts on folly and wisdom. Consider again what we read earlier in the service, what Jesus says about this. Matthew 7, build your house on the rock. This is the solution. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. You see, the difference between self-correcting your life trajectory in 2024 
The difference between that and 2024 with your favorite fill-in-the-blank self-help book, the difference between that and Christianity is our houses are to be built on the immovable rock that is Jesus the Christ. That's why it's one of my favorite hymns. Abide in me, Jesus, as I abide in you. Help me be built on the immovable rock that is you, Christ Jesus. But here's the thing. You have to keep praying this. Abide in me as I abide in you. This is not a, my, my moment just at baptism or just in Holy Week or in Advent season. But this is every day, God. Abide in me as I abide in you. Or else the sandy grounds that are nearby are always tempting me to transition to that, to move to folly. We have hope to deal with our own foolish hearts by being built on the foundation of our faith, the person and finished work of Jesus, our Savior. I do not think the Old Testament is a bunch of self-help, get your life in order, and then the New Testament is the reality of redemption and a Savior. No, I think it goes hand in hand that the life of wisdom is being built in the life of the redeeming work and the finished perfect work of Jesus Christ. And so ask yourself at the beginning of this year, are you really built on sand, but you're pretending to be built on the rock, Christ? This goes back to the very start of the passage. Oh, this is a message about the heart before God. I can't see that. When I shake your hand and you, you go off in your way in negative 1,000 degrees, I can't see your heart, but God can. Even in this moment, ask God to transform your heart. For God to rework the inner, inward parts. Ask the Lord to protect you from foolishness and to walk in the wisdom of the Lord by believing in what he says. And as he says in Matthew, by then responding to his grace by doing what he says. Your doctrine can't save you in itself or make you avoid folly. Only Christ can in a life remaining in him. And so as I often say, go to the school of Jesus this year. Enroll in the school of Jesus. Stay there. Learn from him. And the word of God maybe will then permeate you through and through to live a life so immersed in his gospel if you do go to that school. And if you're postured that way to avoid all the pitfalls and accidents of life under the sun while you dance with folly. So I charge you as a congregation, don't be complacent this year. Don't try to earn the love and forgiveness of God, of course. But don't be complacent with what happens in the heart, my friends. It is the most critical thing in your life individually and in the life corporately of this church. And as 2 Timothy 3.15 says, look to the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we do ask for help. We are so needy and so weak and so frail and fragile. That even one conviction from a, a normal Sunday service, that, that needs to happen on repeat. We need to be convicted every hour, every day with the gospel. Not the false gospel of pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, but falling on the foundation of the true rock of the Son, Jesus the Christ. To recognize that we'll never pursue a path of wisdom and we'll always pursue a path of folly if it depends on our own hearts. And so that's why I ask of God for my own heart, but the heart's here. Lord, would you intervene? 
would you continue that good work in our hearts. And for those here streaming or here present, perhaps they've never believed. Perhaps they are realizing even right now that their foundation has been on sandy ground. Oh Lord, may they call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. May they turn and repent and believe on the finished work and the person of Jesus Christ. But for all of us here, Lord, the, the battle, the war, the fight goes on for our hearts. But thanks be to you, God, that we have you who's in control of all these things. But Lord, we seek you. May we seek your face all of our days. And would you transform our hearts? We pray this in Jesus' name.